From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in between our regular podcast episodes in order to focus on the range of issues and stories in the drinks world. Today, I'm speaking with Carlos de Jesus. He's the Director of Marketing and Communications at Amarim Cork in Portugal. And Carlos, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, this is a topic that I personally, as a as a wine lover and professional, find fascinating because I think so many people who who drink wine don't really think much about the cork, except in the like ten seconds it takes them to get it out of the bottle. But can can you tell us a little bit about what the sort of basic steps are in in actually manufacturing a cork? Well, there are dozens of steps uh, and and uh, and dozens and dozens of years. Sure. Before we are we are able to um, to pull a cork from a bottle of wine and hear that that iconic sound, actually one of the few the few culturally relevant sounds across different cultures, different age groups, uh, even different continents. You name it, it's something that we all recognize as a carrier of normally of good news, if not a straight out celebration. But before that that iconic moment happens. Um, most people don't realize that you cannot touch a cork oak tree where we harvest the bark from until the tree is about 25 years old. Okay. Now, the first harvest happens after a quarter of a century, but does not give us cork good enough to make a wine stopper. And by law, you cannot go back to harvest that cork oak again until at least nine years have gone by. But... That second harvest still does not give you the top quality cork that we look for. So off the bat, you have 25 plus 9 plus 9 years, so 43 years of growth and care before that cork oak is ready to produce top quality wow. uh, cork. And, and that's when the journey begins after 43 years. So it's a very, very long time. Um, once the cork is harvested, which happens between uh, June and August, well, somewhere, depending on the weather, and because the weather is changing and the climate is changing, uh, both are, we need to, um, we need to adapt sometimes and start a little bit earlier in, in, in June or late May. But it's essentially, it's a summer activity. And once that bark is, is harvested, it goes into a, a perimeter, a quality control perimeter for the next six to nine months before each one of those planks is assessed, analyzed, and decided what can be done with it. And what can be done today with cork ranges from wine stoppers, of course, and for spirits, that's still 70% of our approximately 800 million euros in annual sales. But the majority, the vast majority of the quantity does not end up in a wine bottle. It goes from anything uh, that could range from flooring to aerospace and defense materials to our beloved uh, Birkenstock shoes. <laughs> Very cool. And so the 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 cork that does go for uh, wine and spirits bottles, I mean, maybe not on a technical standpoint, but what are the qualities that set that apart from things that go for less specialized, or well, not less specialized, but maybe less rarefied use? Well, we're looking at some key factors here that include, for example, the thickness of the cork plank. It has to have the right thickness for cork to be punched horizontally. So okay. if it's too narrow, you're not going to have the diameter necessary to punch out a cork. It also has to have a, a, a uniformity in the cellular structure 
that makes it look and, and, and feel very, very smooth. Uh, this has a direct bearing upon the oxygen transfer rate, for example, that that cork is going to allow or not once it's inserted in the bottle. And then another incredibly important aspect, uh, and certainly today, is the sensory performance of that cork. For example, one thing that we stopped doing is to punch corks or even you do anything with the part of the bark that it's in contact with the soil. Okay. Why is that? Because if you plot a distribution curve for the precursors of TCA, we're not yet talking about TCA at this stage necessarily, but certainly the precursors of TCA, if you plot the distribution of those microorganisms that in certain circumstances can create that, 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 that uh, problem in wine and in cork, then you'll see most of them will be, not surprisingly, closer to the soil where the humidity is higher, where, where, where the, everything is much easier for these little fellows to, to survive there than further up on, on the tree trunk. So it's an incredibly complex um, product. But again, you're looking at an incredibly complex cellular structure. Just to give our listeners an idea, uh, nature manages to pack on average 800 million cells into that little cylinder that you pull from a bottle top. And each one of those cells has an incredible elastic memory. Each one of those cells, when you compress it, even if you compress it over decades and decades and even centuries, when you release that pressure, they immediately try to get back to its original size. And that's why they work so well on a bottle or in our shoes, as I was joking about the Birkenstock and many other cork Cork, uh, many other brands that use cork shoes. But crucially, each one of those cells also carries a little bit of a gas that is very similar to the air that we breathe. And that, once inserted in the bottle, will help shape the evolution of that wine uh, in a very, very unique way. So it's quite a fascinating material, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'd, I mean, absolutely. I think, as I said at the beginning, it's something that most people, even wine lovers, take take mostly for granted, but that's one of the reasons why we were really interested to get a little more detail about the manufacturer. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Emerim and, and kind of in addition to, um, you know, sort of the, tr what we think of as sort of the traditional cork, what maybe some of the other cork product based products that you guys offer for, for, you know, wine and spirits? Well, we um, celebrated 150 years uh, as a company in 2020. So not a lot of partying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All the plans we had for celebration in 2020 were quickly out the window, exactly. uh, and that was a, a little bit, a little bit unfortunate, obviously, because it's a big, it's a big landmark. But the important thing is that you know we we were able to maintain our supply chain intact. Uh, we produce 5.5 billion corks every year. That's a lot of bottles that need to be stopped because if you fail. Then simply people would not have would not have wine on on their um, on their on their supply chain. So we need we needed absolutely to do that. The, the whole team, you know, there's about four thousand three hundred people at Amarin in dozens of countries in all continents, and we were able to to maintain that supply chain intact. And and I think when you look back, uh, twenty twenty, we'll have at least one great thing is to see the ability of people coming together in so many circumstances. Um, throughout the world and, and here that same thing happened. Those 5.5 billion stoppers are not all the same. In fact, they reflect the myriad of price points and wine types and wine 
qualities and wine varietals that you have from all over the world. So you can have, uh, to give you an idea of a spectrum, a cork stopper that could be as much as $3 a unit or a cork stopper that can be four or five cents on the dollar on the other side of the spectrum. But again, that only reflects the myriad of types of wines that, that we can buy. And, you know, I, I know that um, Amarim has kind of a, you know, both a, obviously a very sort of tradition, well, a long history and, and a very sort of a, a history of making very kind of, you know, I guess we'd consider kind of classic corks, but also obviously, as you said, both to meet a wide range of of demand throughout the industry and, and also kind of to stay ahead of some of the issues that do occur with, with wine and with corks, you know, what are, are there, are there some products that are, you know, that, that listeners, cause we definitely have listeners who are in the wine trade itself would be interested in knowing about. Well, I think um, when you say that we make classical stopper, well, yes, we make, we make, um, we can make a classical stopper, but what you and most people would consider a classical stopper, a natural whole cork stopper carved as a single piece from the bark of the bottle that goes to the wines that we all want to drink more often than not, but unfortunately don't because they can be <laughs> yeah. hundreds of thousands of euros a bottle. That cork today, to give you an example of uh, of the type of quality control that it, it's subjected to, goes through a machine. It's a technology that it's called NDTEC, uh, as in non-detectable technology. It's a machine that has to find, or not, as little as 0.5 of a nanogram per liter of TCA. And he has to do that in seconds. And he has to do that in seconds with such a reliability that we are able to go to our clients and say, yes, there is absolutely no detectable TCA in that cork. And we do this millions and millions and millions of times uh, every year, dozens of millions of times every year. So. It, and I asked uh, the, the, one of the scientists to try to explain that because it's difficult to wrap my mind around that. Well, what's a 0.5 nanogram, you know, well, what does that mean exactly? I know the pharmaceutical industry does quality control in parts per billion, but that sounds easy. Well, the figure that the analogy that they gave me was that it's the equivalent of finding one drop of water in 800 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Oh, my goodness. Again, a drop of water in 800 Olympic-sized swimming pools in seconds with, yeah. with reliability, right? Because otherwise we'll be in trouble. That's the, so I don't think there's a lot of classicism on that kind of approach. Fair, fair, fair. What I think it, it embodies is, is something that I, I, I came to believe more and more that it's a blueprint for a lot of the problems that we collectively are facing today as a society. And that is the ability to grab something that nature gives you and wrap technology around that to make it even better. And that's what a natural whole cork stopper or a technical cork stopper made out of microglomerate granules today is, is, is exactly that. We grab that, that unique cell structure, structure that, that um, nature gave us. NASA, by the way, calls that cell structure the, the nature's own polymer. Um, and we grab that, we wrap technology around it and make a, a product that was good, but had a problem. Uh, uh, that product had a small problem, quote unquote, small, small because it's measured in nanograms, but not that small, because it has a big affinity with 246 trichloroanisole, that molecule that can ruin a bottle of wine, even at very few 
nanograms. So it was quite a challenge, but I really think going forward that the more we bring nature and technology together, not as mutually exclusive players, but, but, but as, as a, a symbiotic approach to, to life in general, I, I think if we look at that, it's not just a cork industry that will be able to grow solidly as we have been uh, for many, many years, but, but some of the other propositions can benefit from it also. So I know we've talked a lot about TCA um, as obviously the biggest issue that um, both, I think, consumers, producers, and obviously cork manufacturers like yourself face with cork. But are there are there other things that you're also checking for in terms of quality that maybe are um, not, that, that may be also interesting to know about? Well, TCA was never the number one or the number two even. Um, okay. Quality problem that 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 Cork had. I mean, in, in fact, today we can say, you know, with absolute confidence that we have defeated TCA. We just launched two new technologies um, on the nineteenth of um, of January, so uh, about a month month and a week ago, something like that, to 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 extend to natural whole cork stoppers the type of guarantees, the type of performance uh, that we already had with microglomerate stoppers at Amarin for a long, long time. Um, but we needed we needed to, um, as we always did, to check for other things. Um, it has to do with, for example, the structure of the cork on the on the inside. Uh, is that structural the, the structural integrity of a cork is a function of what you see on on the outside, but also what lays on the inside. And again, you cannot destroy that cork to look what what's what's going on inside. But if there is one one um, canal from one end to the other, then you would have a lot of oxygen ingress into that bottle and that would lead to, to premature oxidation of the wine. You don't want that. So you have to develop um, technology. A lot of this you know, is powered by, by, by algorithms today that are incredibly powerful. But today we have the ability to look for a, a dozen, more than a dozen of, of quality control checkpoints that need to be to be accounted for before a good cork is considered exactly that. A good cork today is very different from what it was 20 years ago. And I have a, a silly question, but I'm going to just ask it anyhow. Do you, as a person who, who works with cork all the time, have a preferred method for, for like a preferred tool for removing a cork from a bottle? Uh, well, yes. I mean, I, 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 I think I'm not going to, to refer actual brands, but I think we all know what we were talking about, if I say that it has to be to have a double lever and it has to to have the right coating on 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 the actual screw, but I okay. I think um, you know there there are there is in 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 Spain in Vivanco there's an amazing collection of corkscrews, and when you look at some of these pieces, um, yeah, it makes you nostalgic of the days that uh, people took a lot of care to make to make artifacts, and and I think that in the world of wine, you should not lose sight of that. Yeah, but you like you like what what I would consider sort of a traditional like a we call it like a waiter's corkscrew or uh, yes. not yes. not nothing nothing big and elaborate <laughs> like definitely some of our listeners have at home I'm sure we know. <laughs> well, I think they are beautiful to look at, and and I don't use them at home. Um, I think my wife would not allow me to use some of the some of the heirlooms <laughs> that we have there. But but yeah, a waiter's friend is 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 very practical. It works. It's reliable. 
and and if I get home and open a bottle of wine, that that's what that's what I would do. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All right, I just have one last question for you, Carlos, which is, um, you know, you t- you talked a little bit about sort of uh, some of the different products that uh, Emery makes and and the scope of things, but I'm wondering too, you know, obviously we're we're in an era where. Um, there are, you know, maybe more than ever before, a number of different ways to to close a wine or spirits bottle, and and whether that's um, a screw cap or a glass stopper or whatever. And and I would, I mean, I would like. I'm a romanticist at heart, so I love corks just because of the tradition. But I also recognize that, you know, that is one argument for cork. But I'm wondering, you know, are there? Can, I would love for you to make uh, maybe a you make a romantic argument, but also maybe just a. a a very practical one about why why cork is still you know kind of in, I'm sure in your eyes the best way to to close a bottle of wine or spirits. Well, it's just not in my eyes. Um, seven out of every ten bottles of wine in the world today in the 21st century are closed with uh, with, with with cork. To give to give everybody an idea, uh, there's n- there's no exact single source of information about how many bottles I filled and stopped. Every year around the world, but you know we're pretty convinced that it's somewhere between 19.5, 20 in some years. Some years it can go to 19 billion. But so let's say 19.5 billion bottles that are filled and stopped every year around the world. And if you think that's a lot of wine, yes, it is. But it's a lot of wine that is not even considered here. Everything that goes in into you know whether it's a can or or bag in the boxes even. But 0.75 centiliter bottles. Uh, of those 19.5 billion, 12 billion are closed with cork. Screw caps will have about 5, 5.2 billion. But then you still have a lot of plastic out there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and single use plastic wine stoppers in the 21st century make no sense whatsoever. When you look at cork, you look at cork as, a, as, as the, the right option. It's not just because all of us fell in love with wine opening a bottle that had a cork in it. So something must have gone uh, throughout uh, throughout that interaction between the, the wine, the glass, and the cork. Um, there's, there's enough technical. That will be an entire different podcast. And we could be like, glad to do that one day for sure. But the technical aspects of the wine and cork interaction, we just, in a way, begin to understand them now. Then you have that cultural reference or, or, or relevance about about wine and, and that sound that I mentioned a while ago. And if you believe, as I believe, that there is a strong cultural role in wine consumption, um, then that certainly is important. But there's a third item here that is only going to get more important, not less. And that has to do with sustainability. You harvest cork without ever damaging a species that has been around for millions and millions of years. The cork forests of the Western Mediterranean Basin support one of the 36 hotspots of biodiversity around the world. If you think of some of the other 35, you think of places like Borneo, Costa Rica, the Amazon, the Pacific Northwest, actually. So we're mm-hmm. talking about a wealth that goes well beyond the borders of Portugal. And Portugal is the largest producer of cork in the world. But migration of species and birds do not obey political borders, as we all know. Um, regulation of water cycles. It's absolutely fundamental that you have native species to protect the southern Europe, uh, European flank from the advances of the North African desert. Um, the list just goes on and on and on. And, and he actually creates the best paid agricultural job in the world, which is harvesting cork, 135 years per day. It fixes people to the land. 
And each one of these corks can retain as much as 562 grams of CO2, one single stopper. Wow. So when you look at where the world should be heading to, how can you discount what is not only the only truly sustainable option for wine stoppers, but it's actually a blueprint of how you can balance people, planet, and profit. Because that's what the cork industry does. That's what the cork forests offer. And that's what the wine industry makes possible. Because as I alluded to a little while ago, 70%, 7-0 of the value created for cork still comes from wine stoppers. Mm -hmm. So the good news is that when you open a bottle of wine, you're not only opening a bottle of a great product, you're also making a direct, measurable, demonstrable contribution to maintain one of the world's best sustainable story. That's what wine is all about also. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Um, Carlos, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your uh, insight and knowledge about this part of the wine industry and, and beverage alcohol industry that we don't think about all that much. So thank you so much and, and look forward to chatting again in the future. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.